So I'm going to transition the screen a bit. Again, working with a little bit of a wonky setup. I know it's not as bright as I'd like it to be. Apologies until I get the equipment. It's going to look like this, which hopefully by tomorrow, by Wednesday, I'll have a good light to actually for you guys to see this clearer. Um, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews today. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you guys through Hebrews chapter 1. Um, the last episode we did, last teaching on Hebrews, we actually just talked through Hebrews 1, 1 through 6. And we talked about how supreme Jesus is, how he's better than angels, better than so many things. There's 12 attributes of Christ that are unique to him alone that no one else possesses. No one else possesses these characteristics. So um, today what we're going to do is we're going to start in verse 6 or verse 4 actually. I have it pulled up on my screen as well as right here. I hope you guys can follow along with me as smoothly as this, as this goes. I hope it goes fine. Um, but referring to Jesus, we're going to read in verse 4. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited. He's much more excellent than there. So the name that Jesus has inherited is more excellent than the name of angels. So in the book of Hebrews, I don't want to say Paul, but I think it's Paul. Okay, the author of Hebrews is noting how Jesus is supremely above angels and all spiritual beings. Okay, and he actually became as much superior to angels. So he's so much more superior to angels as the name he's inherited. So he is superior. His name is superior. But look at this language. He became superior to angels. Because when you get to chapter 2, the author of Hebrews is going to say, look, Jesus was actually made lower than the angels, but, but now he's been made superior. He's become superior. So much more greater and supreme to angels as the name he's inherited. So I think Jesus becoming superior here is connected to the name he's inherited. So when you ask yourself, in what way has Jesus become superior to angels? Well, it's, I think, directly correlating to the name he's inherited. And the name being the summation of his character. The, I mean, you read Acts, it says there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. No other name grants forgiveness. Right? There's no other name. Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, in the earth below. Every knee will bow to the name of Jesus. And he has inherited this name. So I think Jesus becoming superior to angels is connected to the name he's inherited being more excellent than theirs. He's inherited a superior name through which forgiveness and righteousness and holiness can be extended to people. And also uh, the fullness of his inheritance and salvation and his kingship is actually extended to his people through their faith. So we go to verse 5. I don't want to spend too much time on these verses. My arm's going to be exhausted by the end of this. Whatever. Verse 5, it says, To which of the angels did God ever say? So the author of Hebrews here is about to quote uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Okay? And we're gonna, we already read it in context the last episode. I don't have time to get into that. I want to get to verse 14 by the end. I hope we can get to verse 14. It says, To which of the angels did God ever say? Now the author of Hebrews for the next about nine verses is going to quote Old Testament passages from Hebrews to note how superior Jesus is to angels. Every verse that the author of Hebrews is going to quote from in the Psalms is going to reinforce the idea that Jesus really is superior to angels. 
He's not inferior. He's not lesser. He's not equal. He's superior, infinitely superior. We know this because who did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Now, for, for this little statement right here, I'm going to do a teaching on what it means that Jesus is the begotten son. I'm going to go into that later, okay? But for now, just know that uh, Psalms can actually be translated in other translations. It'll say, today I have become your father. So for Jesus to be, be the begotten son, there's a time in which the today, I don't know when that marking is, I don't know when that started, but the father became, uh, God became the father of Jesus. And I think this being begotten is related to Jesus becoming superior to angels and him inheriting the name. So when Jesus is begotten, when the father says, today I've, I've become your father, it's related to Jesus becoming superior, ascending to a higher status in his resurrected humanity, <clears throat> and actually inheriting an excellent name that is superior to the angels. So the father says in Psalm chapter 2, today you are my son, today I have begotten you, and God doesn't say that of any other spiritual being. He doesn't say that of angels. No angel is the, the exclusive, unique son of God. No angel is, is begotten of the father. This is a unique status and title and position to Christ. And it's related to the name that extends forgiveness and righteousness and salvation to people. And it's connected to Jesus becoming superior through his death and resurrection and his ultimate obedience to the cross. So to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son today, I've begotten you. Or again, now he's going to quote right here, um, Psalm 89, 26 and 27. God says this, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So speaking of the son who is superior to angels, God says, I am his father. I will be to him a father. And I think Jesus becoming the perfect resurrected humanity, right? Through his perfect obedience, through his sacrifice, through him resurrecting from the grave, through him ascending into the heavens above all names, there's a sense in which the father actually becomes um, the father of Jesus's new resurrected human status. Now I don't have time to get into that because again, we'll talk about Jesus being begotten another time. But for now, just know that the father says, I personally will be to him a father. That's why Jesus can extend to us his very sonship is because he is the unique son of God and he extends that status to us. But first, the perfect son of God has to come down and make way for us to walk in that and make way for us to access that. So he shall be to me a son. And again, this is where we officially start today. That was all backstory. <laughs> that was all context. Okay. It says again, when God brings the firstborn into the world. Now, I think the father bringing the firstborn into the world here is related to the father becoming or begottening, begetting the son or Jesus becoming superior to angels. I think all, of, all three of these ideas are related. So again, in verse four, verse 4, Jesus becomes superior to angels. Verse 5, the Father begets the Son. Verse 6, He brings the firstborn into the world. I think all three of these ideas are related. He brings the firstborn into the world, and what does He say? Let all God's angels worship Him. Now, if you read the Old Testament... God doesn't share his glory and his worship with anyone. And yet here he's commanding his angels to worship the son. He's telling them to worship his son. 
Now that doesn't sound like someone who's created or inferior to angels. That sounds like someone who's more excellent than angels and actually has a name that's worthy of their worship. So God says, let all God's angels worship him. Now the author here is quoting Psalms 97. And eventually what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually trace all the different Psalms that the author of Hebrews is linking together. And we're going to go through the similarities and hopefully as we parallel all these different Psalms, we'll be able to see the main points that the author is trying to emphasize about Christ in a deeper way. And it'll, I think, bring clarity to what it means that Jesus is begotten of the Father. So God does bring the, the firstborn into the world, but firstborn here doesn't have to mean he's created, that he was brought into existence and he didn't previously exist. He's just brought into the world. So we don't have to assume Jesus is created or he didn't exist prior to his coming into the world. That's what the incarnation is. He's brought into the world. He's revealed. He's manifested as who he's always been in eternity past alongside the Father. And God declares, let all God's angels worship him. He's worthy of angel worship. This doesn't sound like a created being. This doesn't sound like a mere man. Mere man and all their efforts and all their achievements are not worthy of angel worship. And yet, God commands it here in Psalm 97. So then he goes to verse 7. And we're going to see another Old Testament psalm that's quoted here. Of the angels, God says, we know this is God speaking. So I want you to note, every psalm that the author of Hebrews is about to use, it's God speaking. To which of the angels did God ever say? This almost starts a brand new category, a new line of thought. So from verse 5 all the way down to, I think, about verse 13. Everything that's going to be quoted in the Psalms is God himself saying something. Okay, he's speaking to the Son. He's speaking to the angels, right? He's speaking to... Now we're going to see in verse 8. Hopefully you guys can see this. Good. Let's scoot this over a little bit. Perfect. This is what God says. This isn't even noting what God does. This is quoting Psalm 104, verse 4. It says, God makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, wind here just refers to, to one being sent, one riding the wind on behalf of Yahweh to bring a message, to bring a declaration. The angels are his winds. He makes his angels winds. He makes his angels ministers or a flame of fire. So angels and ministers here are synonymous. Angels are actually ministers on behalf of God who makes them what he wants them to be and commissions them to be a flame of fire. But, now watch the contrast, watch the shift of the Son, like of Jesus. This is what God says in contrast with what he says of the angels. God says, my angels are my ministers, my flame of fire, my winds. I make them what I want. I commission them to do and what I want them to do. But of the Son, this is what God says. Again, this is God speaking. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Do you see it? No angel is given the status of reigning alongside the Father. No, no angel, no spiritual being is given that unique position of reigning alongside God on his throne. This is a shared throne. When you get to Revelation, the, the Father is sharing the throne with the Son. He's sharing worship and adoration and reigning authority with the Son. So the Father says, your throne. He doesn't say my throne. He says, your throne, O God. 
And God refers to the Son as God. Go read the Greek. So this is God speaking to the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Whereas the angels were brought into existence and made to be his winds, made to be a flame of fire, made to be ministers. Angels haven't always existed. Angels have a beginning. Angels have a beginning point and origin. <coughs> Jesus, however, the Son, his throne is forever and ever. That's not that's everlasting to everlasting. That's not just talking about eternally in one direction. That's talking about eternally in both directions. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So Jesus' throne is established on uprightness, or righteousness, justice. His scepter that he rules by, right? The one of uprightness, it's the scepter of his kingdom. No angel is given the kingdom. No angel is given a scepter to rule alongside God and have a throne that, that actually is equal to the throne of the Father. This is unique to the Son. And it's forever and ever. Whereas angels, uh, biblically speaking, it seems to be like they can actually be brought into and out of existence. They're going to be, you know, fallen angels will be destroyed. Those who remain loyal to Yahweh, they'll remain. But Jesus, on the other hand, is called God. His throne, his kingdom is one that's ruled in uprightness, and it's forever and ever. We are a part of a kingdom through Jesus, through the perfect son, through the king of kings and the almighty ruler of the universe. We actually get to be a part of an eternal kingdom. We're connected to one whose throne never ends. We're connected to one whose scepter is uprightness. He rules with justice and holiness and righteousness, and he'll never change. His kingdom is established on uprightness. So watch, this is not something that God speaks of anyone except his son. God does not speak of this, this rule, this kingdom, this throne, this ability to reign alongside the father is extended to no one else except the son. So now we get to verse nine. It says, you, this is God talking. He's talking to the son. You have loved righteousness. How do we know that God is speaking to the son here? Because of the son, God says, your throne, O God. And the line continues. He's like, he's continuing to talk to the son. You have loved righteousness. You have loved righteousness and you've hated wickedness. Now, what the, what the author of Hebrews here is quoting is Psalm 45, 6, and 7. Okay, this is wonderful. We're a part of a kingdom that will never end. Our Jesus, the Son of God, is God in the flesh brought to, into our world to actually establish a kingdom that we get to be a part of that will never cease. And by nature, when we're connected to this kingdom, we actually get to be a part of a kingdom that's forever and ever. In other words, we will not be destroyed with those who oppose this kingdom. So this is what the Father says. You have loved righteousness. That's how we know the scepter of Jesus, his kingdom is, is, is built upon uprightness or righteousness or justice, right? So watch this. It says, you've loved righteousness. This is Jesus. So if we're going to follow in his footsteps, I think you and I should love righteousness. I think we should love that which is honoring to God, that which is pure, that which is holy, that which is blameless, that which is in alignment with his truth. We should love that which is in alignment with God's word and character because Jesus did. And because he's loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You see that? The kingdom of Jesus, his rule, his throne is built on a love for righteousness and a hatred of wickedness. 
So it's not enough. You can't just say, I love the ways of God. And I, and I add that love of God's ways. I add it to a life of sin to love. Righteousness is to, by definition, hate that which is opposed to God, that which violates his word, that which is rebellious to him. And that's wickedness. That's sin. That's dishonoring. Whatever is is of this world and of the enemy and of the darkness, that is wickedness. We should hate that if we're going to effectively love righteousness. Because I don't add a love of righteousness to a lifestyle of sin. Jesus' kingdom and throne is built on actually a righteous fury against wickedness. That which corrupts and pervades and ruins his good creation and his image bearers. So this is what he says, okay? Therefore, God, your God. So because Jesus has loved righteousness, because he's hated wickedness, God responds to God the Son, and he anoints him. So I think the anointing here has to do with the throne of Jesus. The anointing on the part of the Father has to do with the scepter and the kingdom of Christ. You see it? There is no kingdom, there is no throne, there is no scepter that we get to actually be a part of and be attached to without Jesus coming into our world, living the perfect life in our place so that we can actually be a part of what he's been anointed for. As the first resurrected perfect humanity, his kingdom is established for all those who would trust in him and follow in his footsteps. And to follow in the footsteps of God's kingdom, to live like Jesus is to love righteousness and to hate wickedness. We live in a culture where it's like, I I attach Jesus to a life of sin. I attach truth to a life of deception. And and I just, Jesus becomes a part of my darkness. No, no, no. His righteousness and the love of holiness replaces wickedness. Not perfectly, not entirely, not even immediately. But over time, you will follow in the footsteps of Jesus and begin to see a growing love of that which is righteous. You'll see a growing hatred, an honest, like, um, holy... Uh, anger, zeal, passion, an angry passion for that which is wicked. Not the people, but the spiritual beings behind it. Okay, so therefore God responds, your God has anointed you. And a lot of people will say, see, God here is referred to as Jesus is God. But he just referred to the Son as God. So God is anointing God the Son with the oil of gladness. This is language of kingship. This is language of a, of a king ascending the throne on the coronation day. This is language of a priest coming in, a prophet, to anoint a king, to anoint someone for a purpose on behalf of God. But this time, it's God personally anointing the one who has loved righteousness. And through that perfect love, through that perfect life and righteousness, Jesus dies, resurrects, and God anoints him to be the one who establishes an eternal kingdom that we get to be a part of. And the oil of gladness here is beyond his companions. Now, the psalm that's being quoted here is Psalm 45, 6, and 7. Like I said, sorry, bumped you. Psalm 45, 6, and 7 is being quoted here. I don't have time to go into that full context as much as I would freaking love to. I think Wednesday, what we're going to do is we're going to go through all of these Psalms. Like I said, Lord willing, please help me, Father. I want to go through all these Psalms and actually trace all the parallels. And I think where these Psalms intersect is where we're going to find the main points of emphasis 
that the author of Hebrews is trying to make about the son and his kingdom. If you go back to chapter one, or at least verse one through five, this whole chapter, you're, you're, present, you're seeing Jesus presented as prophet, verse one, as priest and as king. He's the perfect priest, high priest that establishes an eternal covenant. He's the perfect king that establishes an eternal kingdom. He's a perfect priest that establishes an eternal priesthood and we get to participate in it. No angel is given this authority and this power and this kingship. This rightly belongs to the son because he's God and he reigns alongside his father as God. And God anoints him with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. And look what else God says to the son. All of these Old Testament quotations are what the father says to the son. God says to the son, verse 10, you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. In other words, you Lord are there in the beginning. Read Genesis chapter one. It opens with in the beginning, God or the Lord. Pull it up because I can't even friggin' remember it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There it is. So this is almost like, not word for word, but every idea in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is right here. In the beginning, God created or laid the foundation of the heavens and the earth. Now hold on. This is God speaking to the Son. He's still talking to the Son. You've loved righteousness. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, the earth is there, it's formless and void, but the foundation of the earth that God is going to work with and he's going to reshape and he's going to organize and structure, the foundation of the earth is there. That's Jesus who lays it. So who is there alongside the Father laying the foundation of the earth in the very beginning before time even started ticking? It's the Son. No angel was a part of that. Or at least to, to my knowledge, when we read the Bible, no angel is given this creative power and authority to be laying the foundation of the earth alongside the Father in the beginning. This in the beginning phrase, it's not noting a time in which that can be measured, you know, according to time. It's, 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 it's a period that exists seemingly outside of time itself. It's that which pre-exists time itself. And Jesus is called the Lord. And he's there. He's laying the foundation of the earth. He's laying the foundation of the heavens. Now watch this. We read the Old Testament and it says the heavens and the earth are the work of God's hands. Now that's true. Because actually the author of Hebrews here is quoting Psalm 102, verse 25 and 27. Okay. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, God did lay the foundation of the earth. God was there in the beginning before time started ticking. He precedes time, space, and matter. He pre-exists this world and this reality. He's there laying the, the heavens as the work of his hands. But notice how this is applied to the sun. And this is connected to the kingdom and the throne and the scepter, the way in which Jesus reigns. In righteousness, in opposition to wickedness, and he's anointed to have a new kingdom, a scepter, and, and a throne that we get to be a part of. But he brings it back to the beginning. So what you have to ask is, why does the author of Hebrews talk about the anointing, the anointing of the Son, 
and then connect it to Jesus being there in the beginning to lay the foundation of the earth. Why does he connect these two ideas? Jesus here is presented as divine, eternal creator and authoritative human king. He's both and. He's the ultimate king of kings. In his flesh, he's established a new humanity, new resurrected humanity, a kingdom in which we get to reign. And he has the authority to do so because he was there laying the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands. So who, got to crack my neck, who is it that created the heavens and the earth? It's Jesus. Not to the neglect of the Father. Is the Father and Son working alongside the Spirit who we see hovering above the waters in the beginning? Father, Son, and Spirit are there working to create everything we see and know today. And we bring it back to the throne and the scepter of Jesus to say He's capable, like He really is capable of establishing an eternal forever and ever kingdom because He was there to create the heavens and the earth with His own divine power. He's capable. Now, we get to verse 11. Hopefully you can see this. If you can't see it, bleh, whatever. I did my best. Okay? So verse 11. Watch what is said about the heavens and the earth. That's the last thing that the author of Hebrews was talking about. It says, they will perish but God talking to the Son, He says, you remain. Not only is Jesus going to outlive the very heavens and the earth that we're a part of right now and that we know of, He preceded it. So Jesus pre-exists it. He's before the heavens and the earth and He'll be there after. He remains. Remember when Jesus says, look, uh, heavens and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord will not Right? The, the word of the Lord will not pass away. The heavens and the earth will. In other words, what is more reliable than the very world we see around us and we're a part of, what's more reliable than that is the eternal word of God. And that's Jesus who remains. He is the word of God. Read John. So the heavens and the earth will perish. The heavens and the earth will wear out like a garment. In other words, they'll reach their maximum usage. They'll reach their maximum functionality. And eventually they'll hit, they'll hit a wall and the heavens and earth will have nothing else to give and they'll wear out like an old garment. Jesus, in the midst of the heavens and the earth passing away, he remains. He's actually the one rolling up the heavens and the earth. So they perish, they wear out, but not without the Son's authority, not without the Son's divine power saying it happens. In other words, Jesus who remains has the power and, the power and authority to roll up the heavens and the earth like a robe. So the author of Hebrews here is saying, like a garment, like a robe, the heavens and the earth, they're going to be done away with. What will remain is the one who rolls them up and pre-existed them, and that's Jesus. This is the Father talking to the Son. Like a garment, they will be changed. So do you see it? There's three things that are said, or four things that are said of the heavens and the earth. They will perish. They will wear out. They will be rolled up like a robe. Like a garment, they'll be changed. 
So this isn't completely doing away with and burning up entirely and destroying. This is to change the state and the condition and the appearance and the substance of the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth perishing here are to be changed. That's what's synonymous with perishing and wearing out. We often think of God's judgment on the world as if he's going to completely remove the heavens and the earth and he's just going to bring something entirely different that has nothing to do with the old heavens and the earth. Now, I think just like our new created selves, there is still, uh, you know, like our personality carries over into the new life. My unique character, my unique traits, my unique gifting, that all carries into the new life. So I think there's aspects of the old earth and the old heaven that will carry over into the new heavens and the new earth. But it's Jesus who's changing them. It's Jesus who's rolling them up. You are the same. This is the Father speaking to the Son. You are the same. You remain. Who is constantly eternal and unchanging and self-existent and pre-exists time, space, and matter itself and will be there at the end of time. It's Jesus. He's better than angels. God never says this about any other spiritual being. God never says this about angels. He doesn't say, angels, you're the same. You know, you'll roll up the heavens and the earth. No, they're just his messengers. They're just, you know, those who bring a message and do the work of God and are commissioned and sent out and they're created by him. Jesus is fundamentally different. He's there in the beginning and he's there in the end. Closing up this show, changing our world into what it's supposed to be, recreating the new heavens and the new earth in himself. He's there and he's the same. So his years will have no end. Not only do his years have no beginning, his years have no end. This is the eternality of Christ. Jesus is said of the Father to be the same. This is what we call the immutability of, of God. The self-existency of God, the self-sufficiency of God, it plays into the immutability of God. God does not change. He's the only one who is the same throughout time. He's the only one who is the same from the beginning to the end and has no beginning and has no end. He's the same. He will not change. He's not subject to altering. He's not subject to changing his character. He remains the same. This is an attribute that belongs rightly to God alone, and yet it's given to the Son. You are the same. You remain. Your years will have no end. It's not just that Jesus will not perish. It's, just, it's not just that Jesus has no beginning. It's that Jesus in and of himself, his character, his substance, his essence has not changed throughout the course of history and never will. Even in him adding humanity to himself, it doesn't alter his divinity. This is the unique character and the nature of Christ. Verse 13. He's going to quote another psalm here. To which of the angels has God ever said? And this has been the line of thought this whole time. What? Has God ever said this to angels? You are the same. Your years have no end. You'll roll up the heavens and the earth. You remain. God doesn't say that to anyone else except his son. And then he goes on and he quotes another psalm. And he's quoting here Psalm 110. Don't judge me. I don't remember what psalms are being quoted. He says, sit at my right hand. God doesn't say this to angels. He does not invite any other spiritual being to sit with him to rule and reign over the universe as a co-ruler. That's reserved for the Son. That's reserved for the one who remains and has no end. So the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand. 
And I think this ascension, this mediation, this, this reigning of Jesus, this is part of what it means that he was begotten of the Father. This is part of what it means that, he, that the God became the Father of the Divine Son in his humanity. This is part of what it means, you know, that Jesus is, let me pull up my verse, that Jesus became superior to angels. Okay, this is part of what it means. So we have to take all these ideas in their totality, in their entirety, okay? So verse 13, to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand? Right hand notes authority and power, okay? Read the Old Testament. It's always having to do with supremacy, chief place, referring to status and position of ultimacy. This is given to Jesus alone. And this is what the Father says. Hey, sit here at my right hand. Rule with me. That's why they have a shared throne in Revelation. Rule alongside me. Share glory. Share worship with me and a divine authority until I make your enemies a footstool. The enemies of angels are not made their footstool. The enemies of Christ are made his footstool. And they're a footstool for his feet. So, here we see the supremacy of Jesus. The one who has been lifted and exalted high above all spiritual powers and rulers and authorities. Go to Ephesians 1. And he sits at the right hand of the Father to make mediation for the saints as our perfect high priest to establish a perfect new covenant and to rule alongside the Father to establish a new kingdom in which righteousness dwells and we get to be a part of it and every enemy eventually, right? When the heavens and the earth perish and wear out, every enemy of Christ and the Father are going to be made a footstool for the feet of Jesus. In other words, Christ is going to prop his feet up on the enemies of him and the rebels of God. Here we see Genesis chapter 3 finding its fulfillment. Here we see Genesis 3 finding its fulfillment. When finally, every spiritual ruler and authority, every principality, every rebel of God is put underneath the ultimate authority and feet of Jesus, and they're destroyed with the heavens and with the earth. Now, what it means that the enemies of God are made a footstool for, for Jesus' feet, we'll see that, I think, later in Hebrews. But for now, remember, the author of Hebrews, I almost said Paul, dang it. The author of Hebrews is comparing Jesus with angels and saying, Jesus, look how much better he is. You can worship angels if you want, you can be fascinated with angels if you want. I'm going to worship the son who brought the angels into existence, who makes angels uh, his messengers, his winds of fire. I'm going to worship God. I'm not going to waste my time with created beings. I'm going to go straight to, the, to God himself because I want to actually be a part of this kingdom in which every enemy has made his footstool. This notes the unstoppable power of God. Like it's coming. I know we don't see it. I know we're looking at the world and going, man, this culture sucks. There is a time coming when Jesus is going to roll up the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth will perish. He'll remain. He'll stay the same. He'll change this world as it is. And he'll completely make a fool and a spectacle of his enemies. And every rebel, spiritual and human, is going to be swept away by the ultimate king of kings. 
This sitting at the right hand of God is more than just Jesus reigning. It's him being the finished high priest. Every other high priest still had work to do. That's why they were always standing. Jesus here is sitting because he's done. He's finished. His, his, his priesthood, his covenant, his mediation, it has no further uh, work. Of course, it's going to be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth, but he's done. And as a result of his finished work, the father responds, I am going to make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then the author of Hebrews ends, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits? Who? Angels? Like God never said this stuff to angels. They're just his ministering spirits. Spirits. If you read Jesus in the wilderness when he's being tempted, the angels actually come to minister to them, to him. Like they're there for him. They're there at his disposal for his benefit. They're just sent by God to minister. And they're sent out to serve. Now, the angels being sent out to serve is likened to Jesus who was sent from heaven to serve us and lay his life down. But now, Jesus has a unique position that's different than the angels. Angels are still sent out to serve as created ministering spirits of God. Jesus is not. He sits at the right hand of the Father actually dispatching angels for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So the angels are not only inferior to Christ, they're not only created by Christ, they're actually commissioned at the disposal and for the purposes of Jesus. And the ministering spirits are sent out to serve believers, those who are to inherit salvation. Now, do you remember the inheritance language we've seen in Hebrews 1? It's talked about how Jesus has inherited a better name how he's the right heir, the rightful heir who deserves the whole universe. And now we're the ones inheriting salvation. We're the ones who these ministering spirits are sent out to serve on behalf of the son who sits at the right hand and dispatches these angels to grant us whatever it is that we need to accomplish the purposes of God until we inherit the full salvation that's ours. So in other words, the inheritance of Christ is extended to those who are going to inherit the full salvation. His salvation, his forgiveness, his, his throne, his new life, everything, his inheritance is granted to us and we're made co-heirs with Jesus. That's the good news about this. We're not looking at Jesus going, oh man, look how awesome he is. I sure wish that, that benefited me. No, the author of Hebrews is going, I'm making much of Christ so you understand who is for you. So you understand who backs your life, who commissions you, who, who your salvation is built on. I want you to know how great he is so you live a greater life. Because your life, as those who are going to inherit salvation, and we're waiting, we're waiting for Jesus to make the heavens and earth wear out and for them to perish and roll them up and change them. We're waiting for Jesus to really conquer every enemy in, real, in actual reality, to see it. We're waiting for that. And until we do, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father is sitting there actually for the sake of us. Not only are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of the elect, but Jesus sits at, the, I know it's not explicitly here, but this is all throughout Hebrews. He sits at the right hand of God for our sake. 
So everything Christ does to serve, just like angels do, but his service resulted in an exaltation and a superior name and a superior status. His, salva- his, his, his perfect work and obedience resulted in our salvation. No angel, no ministering spirit could accomplish our salvation. They're just there to aid us in the work that God has already fully accomplished. Do you rest in Jesus' perfect work? Do you rest in the one who sits at the right hand of the Father? Do you trust him? Do you take him at his word? Do you believe that every enemy, darkness, death, sin, the devil, his demons, every spiritual rule and authority, sickness, pain, everything that doesn't belong in God's good world, everything that's an enemy of God and stands in opposition to his word and his plan, do you believe that Jesus is going to make all those a footstool for his feet? Do you believe that we actually have angels ministering to us and the Son sits mediating a covenant for us at the right hand of the Father. Do you believe that? Do you rest in that? Do you understand how superior Jesus is to every other spiritual being, every demon, every, every spirit you can think of, every angel, every principality? He's greater in supremacy, in power, in authority, in everything you can think of, every dimension, eternality. He's been there From the beginning, angels were not. And Jesus is going to be there in the end. He'll stay the same. This is the Savior we rely on as we wait to inherit the fullness of our salvation. As we faithfully follow God and wait. This is the Savior we follow. We follow Him into His victory. It's not just His victory, it's just His. He extends it to us and He invites us to come and experience that daily. To rest in his ultimate victory. That's what Christ has done. Now I want to bring this full circle. I want to bring this back to verse 4. All the way through. Okay, Just to remember where we've come. The author of Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus has become as much superior to angels. Like he's so superior to angels. And his name is so much more excellent than angels, but the name is something he's inherited. And this superiority to angels is something he attained somehow, not in his divinity, in his perfect resurrected humanity as the one who represents us and mediates a new covenant. God establishes you are my son so that through Jesus we can have sonship. Through Jesus, we can have adoption. We can have the Spirit of God that testifies to our adoption in Christ. But we don't become children of God without the perfect Son coming and making way for that. We don't get to bear the name of Yahweh until Jesus grants us access to that name through His perfect work that He inherits the name. And He extends that to us. This is Jesus inheriting the perfect, the first resurrected perfect human name which offers us salvation and forgiveness of sin and relationship with God and sonship. And it is far more excellent than angels. God has never told angels, I've begotten you today. God has never told angels, I'll be a father to you. You shall be to me a son. God has never told angels to worship each other. He tells angels to worship his son. 
and of the angels, of the angels, and my arm is tired, y'all. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start just do shoulders every day instead. He makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. Now we know that in verse 7, okay, he's speaking of the angels ministering, of course, on behalf of God, but for the sake of us. They minister to us. They're sent from God as a flame of fire, messengers on the winds. They're sent from God to minister to us. God makes his angels do this. But the Son? No, no, no. The Son has a throne. The Son is called God here. The Son has an eternal throne and an, a scepter of uprightness. And his kingdom is built on this uprightness. This throne is forever and ever, and no angel is given that. And Jesus loves righteousness, hates wickedness. Therefore, God responds and anoints him with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. And Jesus laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of his hands. This is not true of any other spiritual being in existence. It's not. The heavens and the earth, they'll perish. But guess who remains? Guess who pre-existed everything we know and experience in this reality? Guess who's going to be there at the end of time as the same he's always been? Guess who's reliable and faithful? Guess who's constant? Guess who comes through on his promises? It's the one whose years has no end. And he actually can back those promises because number one, he is self-existent. Number two, he's eternal. Number three, he's reliable and faithful and he's not subject to change. This is who our Jesus is. And your life is built on someone who does not change, who will not cease, who has always been there from the beginning and will be there at the end of time to roll this thing up and close up the curtains and say it's time to start a new world. No angel is given this authority, this power by God. And this isn't Jesus in gaining power in his divinity. This is Jesus being given at the resurrection through his obedience to become the first of resurrected humanity, he's given the name that encompasses all this stuff. He's always been in his divinity, the, the constant, perfect, immutable, self-reliant God. But he took on flesh, and now that kingship, now that kingdom, now that priesthood, now him as perfect prophet, prophet, priest, and king actually benefits us, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And one day, all his enemies, since he's the perfect, almighty king of the universe, every one of his enemies will be his footstool. The question is, are you an enemy of God that's ultimately going to be a footstool for the feet of Jesus? Or are you on the side of Jesus as those who are guaranteed to inherit salvation? Because your salvation is built on the one who has no end. Your salvation is guaranteed by the one who remains and doesn't change. And if he doesn't change, his word won't change, his promises won't be subject to change. He's reliable, and he's faithful, and he's supreme, and he's self-existent and eternal, and he's way better than angels. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And angels are sent out by him to serve his people. His people. So the question is, okay, how do we end? Well, we have a... Zoom call in about 25 minutes. Make it full screen. <coughs> we have our 
our um, prayer call in about 25 minutes. So set a 25 minute timer. Um, in the meantime, I think I'll take a few questions and just answer those as best as I'm able to. Again, this is a new kind of model for teaching that I'm trying out, seeing if it's effective and helpful. Honestly, like this is helpful for me because teaching with a screen, I, I can't highlight and trace things. I can actually like point you to the words and the phrases and, and emphasize things. So this is helpful for me. Let me know in the comments if this is helpful for you. Um, but in the meantime, like join the Zoom call in about 25 minutes. If you need prayer, if you want a fellowship, if you have questions, if you're just looking for godly community to be a part of, join the Discord. Um, get involved in the Zoom calls every single weekday we have. At 11.30 Eastern Standard Time, we always have our Zoom calls. We pray with one another. We talk through the sermon. We, we share what God is teaching us. We fellowship. We encourage each other. If you're looking for godly community, join the Discord. Be a part of the Zoom calls. And visit, watch this, AboveReproachMinistry.com for everything that we have. You can check out our podcast, our YouTube channel, the book that I've written. You can check out our free online Bible skills courses. You can check out our free weekly Bible study devotionals. You can check out our free workshops. Um, everything that we have to offer is free to everyone around the world because of generous supporters like you guys. So thank you for those that have given one time through Cash App or PayPal or Venmo. Thank you for those that have given monthly. Thank you for those that have signed up as patrons. And, and when you do, you get exclusive access to my sermon notes and teaching material and discounts on merch and you get a free copy of my book so thank you for those that have signed up and have actually helped us financially i have a wife and two kids so this is my full-time job to support my wife and two kids this is what god has called me to to teach people how to read the bible so they can live and teach the bible themselves and if you've benefited from this you're encouraged and god's placing it on your heart to support in any way um, you can give financially on the website Visit AboveReproachMinistry.com. For all these links, just, just click the link in my, dis, in my uh, TikTok profile, okay? Just click the link. You'll see our community. You'll see our Discord. You'll see the Zoom link. The password is Jesus. You'll see our website, the merch, um, all the different social media platforms we're on, our podcast, YouTube channel, uh, the online courses we offer if you want to learn how to develop your Bible study skills. All of this is for free. And uh, it obviously costs me time and energy and time away from my family and money on my own. So for those that want to support and make this better, um, thank you. Thank you for those that help. In the meantime, I do want to take a few questions. And by the way, the Zoom link is in the TikTok profile, okay? So just go to my TikTok profile, click the link, you'll see the Zoom call. In about 20 minutes, we're going to jump on and the password is Jesus, okay? Password is Jesus. And this is above reproach ministry. Above Reproach Ministry. Um, so, I encourage you guys to check it out. And um, I would like to take a few questions if I'm able to. If I'm able to. I don't know if anyone's going to ask anything. But any questions just around Christianity and the faith. If I'm looking down, it's because my phone's right here. For those that are on YouTube. Why is he looking at his, his feet? Because my phone's right here, so I'm looking down at those that are asking questions. Just ask it in the um, interact box or, or the question box, or you can just ask it in the chat. And um, we try and do, um, whatchamacallit, we try and do evening calls as well. We'll see how far that goes and how long. I don't know how sustainable that is, but I'm gonna do my best. Uh, I'm located in Florida, 
And I've been doing this, honestly, teaching for about eight years now, nine years. I turned 30 in August, so I'm not five. I don't know why the question box isn't there, Jess. Thank you for letting me know. Um, no, I don't want that lightning Q&A. Go away. Um, randomly, why can't I? I want my question box. Well, it's not there, guys. I apologize. Um, so, so just ask the questions in the chat. If anyone wants to join the live to actually ask a question, that'd be helpful too. We only have about 20 minutes till we have our Zoom call. And once we have our Zoom call, um, you guys can share more. Like if you want to talk through stuff and ask questions and fellowship and, and get prayer and pray with one another, join the community, get in the community. Are you a pastor? Where's your church? Um, I'm not a pastor per se by title, but I am uh, someone who shepherds people as best as I'm able to. And our church is mainly online. Above Reproach Ministry is online for now. Uh, Lord willing, we'd like to have a uh, physical campus where we teach and train people up and have a community and house people and give opportunity for people to work and all that. But for now, we're just online. I don't, we've only been at this realistically for about six months. I moved here in November. So how do you differ from evangelical church? How do I differ? Um, there's a lot of evangelical churches, especially in the, <coughs> what's the term? What's the term? What's it? Reformed? In the reformed sphere of evangelical Christianity. Um, Calvinism is huge. I am not Calvinist. I used to hold to Calvinism. I don't anymore. I just don't see it in the scripture. It doesn't mean we can't get along and be brothers and sisters. I just don't see it. Um, uh, so I'm not Calvinist. I, I'd say I'm more Reformed charismatic, if that's even a, a term. I made it up, so back off. It's my term. Can't have it. Um, so I'm more like Reformed charismatic, but I um, I don't know. Like I do this every day. Yeah, every weekday we have this. And you can see my face on YouTube for those that are like, I love the paper. Forget the face. You can stay on TikTok and get you. But for those who want to see what I'm going through um, on YouTube, you can join the YouTube live right now. Any advice for a brother starting to build ministry similar to this? Um, 100%, yes. My advice to you is do not be concerned with statistics, analytics, numbers, comments, feedback. That, that's not ultimate priority. Those things have a place. I think in terms of ministry nowadays, those are just factors that you have to consider. Um, in terms of budgeting and knowing where to allot your time and, and what content is actually getting traction and, and what's actually getting people's views and, and where people are commenting. But what's ultimate as a minister in the digital space, in the physical world, wherever you find yourself ministering as, as a believer, and everyone's called to minister, okay, we're just going to do it in varying degrees. My encouragement for you as you build a ministry is to prioritize the presence of God above everything else above your analytics, above your content, above your community, above your subscriber base, above your email uh, database, uh, above everything else, the logistics of your ministry, above everything. Prioritize the presence of God first. Yesterday I was hit hard with that realization. So as you build ministry, the tendency is to move away from the beautiful presence of God and to almost see Jesus now as supplementary to my plan rather than my plan being supplementary to the presence of God or even an overflow of the presence of God. I want my fruit. 
I want my purpose and my calling and my ministry to be the overflow of my time in God's presence. If I don't have time in his presence, my ministry will, will grow stale. Analytics will mean nothing. People will be coming to a dry community that's barren, and you might be saying the right things, but you lack love, you lack genuine uh, authenticity with Christ and passion, whatever it may be. And I'm not saying I totally have those things. The point is, starting a ministry in any capacity, you and I are tempted to replace God with the ministry model. And I'll tell you, the presence of God is my ministry model. Like knowing him and putting him first, that is my ministry model. I don't care how effective you are, how many people you're saving, or how many demons you cast out this weekend. If you're not knowing God better each day, if you're not in his presence, it all amounts to. God can still effectively work. He can still do good through your, you know, uh, I don't know, half-hearted efforts. But it amounts to not as much as it could without his presence. And so there's too many ministers relying on their experience, their education, their preparation, their gifting, their skill, their audience, their, their entrepreneurship. They rely too much on that. And they start to replace the presence of God with, with worldly ideas and philosophies that aren't capable of sustaining ministry. So um, that's my encouragement to you. Why are you in this specific church? Because uh, I'm the head shepherd. God called me to start this. Um, God made it clear that this is what he wanted my family and I to do, was move across the U.S., leave our home in California, leave our community, leave our safety, leave our convenience of a paycheck to paycheck every other two weeks, and, and to come here and, and actually minister online. So, yeah. In about 15 minutes, guys, we're going to jump on our Zoom call. So the link is in my bio. Password is Jesus. Um, I encourage you guys not to miss it and to get involved in this community a little more. Take the free online courses. They're there. For those of you that want to develop your Bible study skills, that's another tip. Like, if you're going to do ministry, you need to know how to read the Bible. Don't just know what the Bible says. Know why it says that and know how to walk people through that. And the free online Bible skills courses we have on my website... Those are exactly designed for people who are in ministry, for people who want to teach others and want to take others deeper. That's what this is designed for. Uh, Vitalius says, how do you support yourself? Where do you get your salary from? I don't have a salary. Um, I just rely on God to provide through his people, through people that want to give and are, have benefited from this and their lives have changed and, and their marriages have, have been helped and their, their, their workplace has been helped and what, their finances have been helped, whatever it is, how God has helped through this ministry when they respond in, in generosity. That's how God supports us. Um, we do sell like church merch, above reproach apparel, but that doesn't bring in any money like at all. Um, our main sources are like Patreon, people who give on a monthly basis and get exclu exclusive benefits from that or people who give one time through PayPal or Venmo. And they're like, thank you for the ministry. Thank you for the teaching. Um, or just, just generous people who invest into what God is doing here. So um, I don't charge for anything because that doesn't sit well with me. Other people do. It's fine. doesn't mean they're ungodly. I think minister, every minister is different. God has a different calling for every uh, minister of his. But for me, I, when I hear Jesus say, freely you've received, freely give, like, I don't just think that applies to the gospel. I think that applies to teaching and, 
and, and, and studies and, and, you know, uh, curriculums and trainings, all that stuff. So can you answer my other question above? Sure. Uh, what's this church's stance on LGBTQ plus community and its rights? Do you support? I support people knowing Jesus and living the fullest life. I support the ways of God. I love people who identify as LGBTQ and are part of that community. I love them. I, I long for them to know real hope and know real peace and know real life. I want them to know Jesus. I don't support how they live, but that doesn't mean I don't love them as a person. See, we live in a society where we think in order to love someone, you have to approve of everything they do and everything they say and everything they like. That's not logical. That's not sustainable. That's not realistic. We're called to love people and I don't have to approve of how you live. I can choose to say, you know what? I, how you live isn't the best, but I'm going to love you into the, to a better way of life. That's what love is. Love moves people into the ideal, into what's most beneficial. And, and the LGBTQ lifestyle is, is anti-biblical. It's anti-God. It's against his intended order and structure. Um, it's sourced in the flesh. It's not a part of God's ideal for humanity. Um, the, the enemy has twisted sexuality and, and made sexuality, a, made a God out of it so that now we worship at the altar of sexuality and gender orientation and it's everything. Whereas like when you die and you stand before God, you're not going to be concerned with your gender. You're not going to be concerned with what you identified as. You're going to be concerned with, did I know and believe in the resurrected Savior? That's all you're going to care about. And we're called to love people into the truth. And you can't deliver the truth without love, but I don't have to approve of everything you do in order to love you. I can, like, anyone who knows me, you can love me and tell me I'm doing something wrong. And that's actually very loving to tell me that I'm doing something that's hurting me. When I don't see it, when I'm unaware of it, when I'm hurting myself and I'm, and I'm just not feeling it, you calling it out, that's loving. To let me stay in and live in what's hurting me and has long-term consequences psychologically, emotionally, relationally, when you let me live in that, that's not loving. You might call it tolerance, but that's not love. Tolerance and love are not the same thing. Love is to be concerned with the ultimate benefit of another and to lay your life down for that and to move them towards that and to do what it takes to help them realize that, right? So we're called to love people into the truth, but I don't have to tolerate what you're doing. I can, I can say, hey, what you're doing isn't good. It's not helpful. You're actually hurting yourself. And I'm concerned for you. That's why I say that. That's why I say that. So you can, you can um, support a person and love them without approving of their lifestyle. I'm not saying you can't have LGBTQ plus friends. I'm saying you need to be very intentional and mindful of how you relate with them and how much you're approving of verbally, non-verbally. Uh, you would be very careful with how you present Jesus and how you define love. Because when we say love is love, we're just using circular reasoning. You don't define a word with the word itself. Love is, <laughs> love is not helpful. It's not a definition. We need a definition. Um, so to be against the ways of God, which is uh, 
to be against his word, to be against his character, to go against his ideal for humanity and the order and structure that he's given us for life, to be against that is ultimately going to create a kind of psychological, emotional, or relational harm, if not immediately, and if not like even for a number of years, it will happen. It, it, and it's very like long-term until Christ comes in and heals and redeems and restores and fixes and adjusts. So I'm not saying being gay is harmful. The point is living anti-God is harmful in your sexuality, in your relationships, in your finances, in your workplace, with your mouth, with your body, with what you watch, with what you listen to. Living anti-God is harmful. And you might not be harming anyone in an obvious way, but sin is like a hand grenade. You can't contain the explosion. Like the shards are going to hit someone. So uh, your sin is not always just affecting you. Your lifestyle that you might say, it's fine. God loves me. It's fine. You can say that, but come to me in 10 years and tell me how you're doing. Tell me where you're at, like uh, relationally and psychologically and emotionally and, and where you're at, you know, internally, your view of yourself. Tell me where you're at in 10 years. We got, we got to be very careful with how we approach these things. And we can't swing to two, two extremes, right? Where it's like, y'all going to hell. That's, avoid that garbage. Or where it's like, everyone gets into heaven. That's also equally garbage, okay? There's a fine line between loving and tolerating. Love is not tolerating. Love is actually uh, willing, being willing to call out what's hurting someone, even at your own expense. Um, so... Satan twisted sexuality. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our, our responses sexually, our, our, our bodies, desires, and passions, our fleshly cravings have been twisted and perverted by darkness, by sin. God creates us to be good, right? And, and how much you chalk up your sexuality to upbringing and culture and, and genetics, okay? There's probably an equal split between the two. But the point is, my sexuality is not purely something I'm born with. There, there are things I learn. There are things I imitate. There are things that happen to me that pervert and, and twist my, my concept of sexuality. Okay, so there's a lot of... Now, Satan twisting isn't creating. Um, Satan can only work with what God has made. Uh, Satan cannot bring something new into existence. Satan doesn't have the creative power of God. But Satan can pervert and twist and ruin what God has created. So um, God loves us. God created all of us and we're made in his image. But not everyone is a child of God. That's why John chapter 1 says we need to be, actually Jesus gives us the right to become a child of God. Not everyone has that inherently when they're born into the world. Uh, we're tainted and corrupted and and perverted by sin, and we grow up in a sinful world, and we, we add more darkness, and we become more dark until Christ saves us and rescues us from the darkness, <laughs> from sin, from death, from the devil, from all that. Okay, so um, I think that is it. Listen, in about five minutes, again, five minutes, we're going to jump on our Zoom call. If you want prayer, if you want fellowship, if you're looking for godly community, if you have questions about today's message, um, this isn't for trolls. This isn't for disrespectful people. This is for those who are looking for community and fellowship and want prayer and 
want to talk through stuff and want to share wisdom. So come and be a part of the Zoom call. As long as you're going to be respectful and you're not going to be a troll, you're welcome, okay? So the Zoom call is beginning in five minutes. Set a timer. Set an alarm. Call your mama and say, Mom, in five minutes, I'm a knucklehead. I need you to, to call me and tell me it's time to get on the Zoom call. Thanks, Mom. I know I'm 48, but I love you, and I still rely on you. Okay, do whatever you need to do, and um, I'll see you guys later. Thanks for watching. Visit AboveReproachMinistry.com for all of your needs in this life. All right? Sorry, I got to go, guys, because I got to pee. I got to get water, and in five minutes, I'll see you guys on the Zoom call. Bye.